We'll read verses 9 through 22, and we'll read them responsively. We'll read the odd verses together. I'll read the even verses alone. We'll finish the chapter together on verse 22. Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 22, the Word of God says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Hast thou blessed the work of his, thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when the sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, And there came a messenger unto Job, and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them, and took them away. They they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. And together, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Let's pray. Lord, we have much to learn from this passage of Scripture and so many truths here. And yet I pray tonight you'd use Job and his example as a way to teach us how to discern uh, Satan's attacks against us, how to recognize them, and how to fight against them. And we pray that you'd be with all those who are in affliction, suffering. We pray that their faith fail not, and we pray 
when our time comes to suffer, that our faith would remain strong as well, and we would still worship you and trust you as Job did. So I pray you'd equip us tonight for spiritual battle. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in this little mini-series about the Satan's tools of spiritual warfare. And tonight we talk about number five. I'm kind of praying about this because I did not intend for this to be a month or two series, but I'm also trying to be uh, sensitive to the Lord so that He can have His will done and not mine. I want to get to our theme in Christ, but if He has other plans, then that's totally fine. I think I'm only going to get to one point this evening. We have ten we're on number five, Satan's tools of spiritual warfare. We talked about the ones in the beginning. Of course, we talked about doubt is Satan's main tool. He loves to create doubt. We talked about distortion. He creates doubt, and then he begins to distort the truth, confuse the truth, cause confusion. And then thirdly, deception. He creates doubt, he creates distortion, and then he just downright lies. And by that time, a lot of people believe the lies. And then we talked about last Sunday night, number four, he uses devils. This is his satanic army of fallen angels. Make Satan look like him. he can be everywhere at once. Make Satan look like he's even perhaps omniscient. He's not. He just uses well this horde of evil spirits to do his bidding. And we talked about that and how to fight against that. And tonight, number five, the fifth tool of Satan's spiritual warfare is deprivation. Deprivation. What does that mean? When we are deprived of what we think we should have, or perhaps even what is rightfully ours. What we learn here in this passage of Scripture is God was pleased with Job. Job was a good man. Uh, he had a good family. He was a good dad. He took care of his, his business. He uh, was wealthy. And the Bible has a lot of good things to say about Job in the beginning of Job chapter 1. So Satan was going about always causing trouble. And as we talked about last week, Satan is still subservient to God. If God summons him, he must come and give an account of his doings, which that must just gall Satan to no end. Here he is trying to have this big rebellion, overthrow God, and God can summon him like you would call your dog. Satan's a defeated foe, and God is going to win. We already know how the story ends. But here Satan has to come and give an account. I'm sure he's causing trouble. He's the accuser of the brethren. I'm sure he's saying all kinds of bad things and God says, what do you think about my servant, Job? And Satan could not deny that he was a good man. Matter of fact, look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant, Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, and one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Perfect doesn't mean sinless. It means complete, mature. So here in God's estimation is the best Christian on the planet, the best follower of God on the planet. 
technically wouldn't have been a Christian back then, the best follower of God on the planet. Today, what would be considered the best Christian on the planet? He was mature. He was upright. He feared God. He hated evil. But notice Satan's response in verse 9. Doth Job fear God for not? Here's what Satan said. Job loves you because you're good to him. Job tries to serve you and please you because you're good to him. But look what he says in verse 11. Satan tells God, but put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. The Satan's supposition was, if you are bad to him, or if you allow me to hurt him, he will hate you, God. This goodness is not in him. This goodness is in response to your goodness to him. And if you allow me to hurt him, he will hate you for it. You know, Satan uses that trick still yet today. That Satan, one of the attacks of Satan is, if he can get permission or if he can work it out to hurt us, to wound us, to deprive us of what we feel we're owed or what should be rightfully ours, Satan knows that an awful lot of people are going to ball their fist up to God and curse him as if it's his fault. And it's often hard to tell what is judgment from God and what is satanic warfare. In the scripture here we read, imagine Job here sitting on this day. He'd probably gotten up every morning like he did. He got up and prayed for his sons. He did sacrifices for his sons and daughters. You find out in the beginning of Job chapter 1. Prayed for his children every day. Wanted them to be close to the Lord. Walked with God. And then he's sitting there. And now these waves of bad news begin to come. And all of his wealth is taken. So imagine being rich, not having care for anything, and now you have nothing. Your bank account's drained. You have nothing left. You don't know where uh, you're going to buy food. His wealth was gone. His food was gone. Back then, the, the animals were not just wealth. They were also the food. Uh, his children were gone. Ten children gone in a moment. Imagine that. Imagine seeing one casket, and it's a terrible thing when any parent has a child die, but imagine going to a funeral with ten caskets. Wave after wave of bad news. Verse 16 says that while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep. So this eyewitness said, The fire of God, this was from God. God took your sheep. But was it God? Was it satanic warfare? See, sometimes it's hard to tell Sometimes we feel like God is doing things to us when it's really Satan attacking us. And we get confused. And if you get confused, it's easy to raise your fist to God. In chapter 2, his wife looked at him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Now whether she was just cynical and she said, you know what, life's not worth living, or if she out of pity said, Job, your life is such a mess. You're in so much pain and suffering. 
why don't you just end it all? Either way, when your wife, when your spouse turns his back on you and said, you'd be better off just if you weren't here. That's, that's a low point. We find, we won't look at it, but in, verse, in, in chapter 2, as if this wasn't enough, Satan took his health. But he not only took his health, he gave him an affliction that was very painful. To where Job, the boils and the sores, the only relief he could get was to sit in, in a pile of ashes and rub the ashes on his open wounds and scrape the boils trying to get the pus out and then taking the ash and rubbing them on him. So imagine a man sitting in a pile of ashes, his face twisted with grief and pain, his body oozing, the suffering was indescribable. And Satan said, oh, you do that to him, he'll curse you to your face. Satan said to God. But Job's example is an important one for all of us. Look at verse 20, Job's response. So imagine wave after wave after wave after wave of bad news. His life changed in moments. Verse 20, then Job arose and cursed God and told everybody how unfair it was and told everybody how he had done everything he could and yet God was doing this to him. Oh, wait, that's what the NIV says. That's not, no, that's, 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 that's not what the NIV says. Look what it says in verse 20. Then Job rose and rent his mantle. It was a sign of grief. Just ripped his, his outer coat apart. Shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and what? Worshipped. What is worshipping? Worship is when you tell God how great he is. When you tell God what he means to you. You praise him and you worship him. So here's a man, when he's faced with affliction and deprivation, he didn't curse God, he fell on his face and worshiped. And then he said some wise things. And he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What was he saying? I didn't deserve all this stuff anyway. I came into this world with nothing. If God wants me to leave with nothing, that's the way it'll be. God's good. Verse 22, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. As I said, we won't read chapter 2. Satan comes back and he didn't get the response he wanted. So... Satan wants to move him more. Let me just look at a couple of these verses. Verse 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Same testimony as last time. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him. What's the next phrase? Without cause. It's astounding to me how many Christians believe that if someone is struggling, they must have done something bad. I remember when Sarah first got sick, and really sick, 
uh, we had some well-meaning people. Sometimes they would ask, in a, a few asked in a, in a really well-meaning, polite, unoffensive way. You know, have, have you just made sure there's nothing in your life that would cause God to, to bring this upon you? Uh, and, you know, honestly, that's one of the first responses to a Christian when you get in affliction. Is you, you don't need to be told. You're like, hey, Lord, are we okay? Because this, I can't do this. Are we, we okay? The first thing you ought to do is make sure you're right with God. But we had a few people that assumed and kind of scornfully said, well, you must have some sin in your life for God to allow this to happen. And after I punched him in the face, and they, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. But you almost feel pity for people like that because it's like, what a, what a terrible view. And then you know what? Not too much later, when they get in a bad spot, uh, we get the opportunity to show them how Christians should treat one another who are suffering. But oftentimes we just assume that if somebody is in trouble, they must have done something wrong. But here God says, no, Job didn't do anything wrong. It was without cause. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes things come on you without reason that you can see. And one thing we've learned is to ask God why. It's not a sin to ask God why in a sincere manner. How do we know that? Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was not a sinful question. It was a question of desperation. It was an honest question, a sincere question. And there's going to come time in your life where you're probably going to be like, God, why is this happening to me? But there is a different kind of why that is a sinful question, an accusatory why. Why would you do this to me? Why is this happening to me? You've got to be careful to keep those whys very far apart. And what we've learned is when you're going through a, a long-term affliction or difficulty, you just stop asking why. And you just trust. Because maybe God's doing it for a reason that's beyond our understanding. But you can have this confidence, one of these days you're going to get to heaven and you're going to find out, and having the, the perfect mind of God there, you're going to be like, oh, now I see why that happened. Now I understand why that was good. Now I understand why you let me suffer for that other good thing. Never forget, if, if Almighty God was willing to allow His Son to suffer and die for the good of all mankind, Almighty God is willing to allow you and me to suffer for the good of others as well. Our Christianity is based on suffering. We just have to be willing to suffer faithfully too. And so here, look at verse 4. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. See, Satan's, Satan's supposition is, well, you just haven't hurt him enough. If you let me hurt him more, then he'll curse you. Then he'll hate you. Verse 5, but put forth now thy hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy faith, face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot 
under the crown, uh, unto the, his crown, and he, Job, took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and not and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. So up to this point, Job had retained his integrity. He was not cursing God. But let me explain to you. And some of you are, are aware of this, but watching my wife suffer, there is no suffering quite like your own body being the thing that punishes you. Uh, living in a prison of pain. Listen, being broke's bad. Being sick's bad. All the terrible things that can happen to someone are painful. But whenever the very home of your soul is punishing you every moment of every day, that's a level of suffering that most of us will never know. That's where Job was. His body became a torture chamber of pain. So he's dealing with the mental grief, the emotional grief, the distress of his life just falling apart in a moment. And now his body is punishing him. Imagine him having trouble sleeping. Imagine him falling asleep and the pain waking him up out of a deep sleep. I can't count how many times over the last 10 years I have heard my wife groaning in her sleep. I can't count how many times she, her pain has woken her up as she will groan or shriek as her pain will wake her up in a start. And from the moment, she, from the moment she's conscious, she's in pain. It used to be that she had... Comfort in sleep. But now, the last several years, she dreams, in her dreams, she's in pain. So even sleep is no respite. I don't say that for any other reason than to say this gives us a framework of Job's suffering. I don't think we really understand the intensity of Job's suffering. Mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, every part of Job's being was crushed and being tortured. And in all this, he didn't sin against God with his lips. And he did good for another week. He had three friends that came and sit down next to him in the ashes. And they, when they saw him, they were so dumbfounded by his his situation, they didn't know what to say. And so they just sat there and suffered with him. And sometimes that's the only thing you can do, is just be with someone when they're suffering. But then his friends opened their mouth. And 
Job opened his mouth, and his mouth got him in trouble. But now you've got to understand we're at least a week into this, probably more like eight to ten days into this intense suffering. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 1. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. <laughs> I mean, he said, I wish I'd never been born. You ever been there? Suffering so deep, so desperate, I wish I'd never been born. And he goes on, and then his friends began to say things like, well, you must have some sin in your life, Job, for God to do this to you. And the rest of the book of Job, except for the last few chapters, are him and his friends going back and forth. And Job comes to this conclusion, it's not fair. Not fair. I'm still going to trust God, but it's not fair. And he says, I, even, I wish I could reason with God. I wish I could... Sit down from God and ask Him, why? What did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? It's not fair. Well, you must have sinned, Job. I didn't sin. It's not fair. Well, you must have some sin in your life because God's not unrighteous. He wouldn't do this to you if I didn't sin. It's not fair. And this fight back and forth. And the more Job engages his friends, the deeper he gets into this hole until God himself at the end of the book comes to him and says, Job, you wanted to talk? I'm here. Let's talk. And God corrects Job in his thinking. Job humbles himself. Gets right with God. Prays for his friends. The Bible says they're healed, whatever that means. Apparently, God had put a judgment upon his scorning friends for attacking Job. And then it ends with God giving Job twice as much as he ever had before. The thing that Job did right throughout all of this is he was frustrated, he was angry, he didn't understand, he thought it wasn't fair, but he never lost his faith. He never lost his faith. And I say all this as a long introduction just to tell you and I, Satan still uses this trick today. Oh, you're sitting in church tonight? Oh, you got, a, you got a cute little marriage. Oh, your kids, your family's doing okay. You got a nice job. You got some money in the bank. Boy, God's blessing you. And Satan says, take his stuff, and he'll curse you to your face, God. Let me hurt her, God, and she will curse you to your face. And since we know that one of Satan's tricks is hurting us and depriving us of what is right and good, then we must know that whenever we come to a place where we're in distress or when things turn bad and we lose the job or a loved one dies or the marriage falls apart or something terrible happens and people are saying terrible things, the money's gone, you lose the house, the car's repossessed, whatever it is, we must stop and think that this could be an attack of Satan and I will not, I will not curse God. My faith will remain strong in God. Satan uses deprivation. When Satan attacked Job, he immediately began to strip him of the people and possessions most valuable to him. Now let me just say, whenever life turns upside down, 
the first thing you do is say, Lord, are we okay? Are we okay? Because you got my attention. And by the way, if you get in sin, Satan knows how to get your attention. He's got a big paddle, and he knows how to use it. And he can get our attention in a way that we will never forget. Brother Pash still talks about the time. How many years ago was that, that car accident where the Lord got your attention? Fifty years ago, Brother Pash still points back to a time and says, I was out of the will of God. I was, I was not surrendered to God, and God got my attention. And he can get your attention in such a way where 50 years from now, you'll be telling the story. But he doesn't tell that in a way like, oh, look what God did to me. That's not fair. No, he tells it with gratitude. God did this to me and saved my life, turned my life around. So our first response to affliction, to suffering, should be, Lord, are we okay? Is there anything between us? I want to get everything right. But sometimes everything is right, and you're in the middle of a satanic attack. And so we, we have to understand that Satan knows we find much joy and comfort in the people and possessions with which God blesses us. So Satan works to deprive us of the good things God has planned for us in this life. Satan knows that when people miss out on the good things of life or they begin to suffer, many people will get hardened against God. They'll harden their heart they will begin to blame the Lord. And don't forget, Satan always attempts to make God the bad guy. Even in the Garden of Eden, he was talking to, to Eve, and he said, God doth know in the day that ye eat thereof, you shall be as gods. Listen, God told you not to eat that. It's because he's lying to you. God knows when you eat that, you'll be free. God's the bad guy. You're imprisoned in this beautiful garden, and that fruit that you shouldn't eat is actually the key to your liberty. You'll become a God yourself. Always painting God the bad guy. And we must not fall for this tactic. The problems in life are not God's fault. Let me make a distinction. Sometimes God will allow bad things into our lives. Here's where the rubber meets the road. He's God. He's God. We are the vessels for His use. If I have a cup in my home and I want to put coffee in it, man, it tastes good. That cup's like, boy, I like, I like holding this coffee. That's good stuff. Or, you could put in vinegar. And the cup says, oh, I don't like this vinegar. But you know, the cup never looks at you and says, why are you using me this way? The Bible says about the potter and the clay. The clay doesn't look up at the potter and say, why are you forming me this way? And so we have to understand that sometimes God will allow difficult things into our lives, but he's still God. And the comfort of God's sovereignty works both ways. I have comfort knowing that God's in control, 
Boy, that's wonderful on my good days. It helps me relax. But did you know on your worst days, you can still take comfort that God's in control? And the beautiful thing that we learn in in Job chapter 1 and 2 is that Satan can't do anything to you and I unless God permits it. You say, why would he permit that? Oh, there's that why question. You know, Job didn't understand why, but here we are thousands of years later using his example to encourage our hearts and help us live for God. God was willing to allow one man to suffer in a terrible and unique way so that he could teach generations of his people how to do it right. And Job's not in heaven saying, Lord, that wasn't fair. Job's in heaven going, I'm in the eternal book. God used my life in a way that I would have never thought possible. And whenever we're willing to suffer with faith, God can use our lives. Our lives become a stage for God's grace and glory. But whenever we suffer and we turn against God, that's the worst form of suffering. Nothing ever comes to me that doesn't first come through God. And that means that God has already provided what I need to get me through the trial. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Didn't say enjoy it, but you can make it. There is nothing in your life. I'm talking about the cancer. I'm talking about the suffering. I'm talking about the death of loved ones. I'm talking about the loneliness. I'm talking about the the relational struggles in your family. There is nothing in your life that God has not already provided you not only a way of escape, but power and authority and strength and grace to bear it and to come through on the other side, bringing him glory through it all. So Satan always attempts to make God the bad guy. One way he does this is by taking away what we find enjoyment and pleasure and strength in. But we must never allow the lack of what we need or what we think we deserve to cause us to doubt God or foolishly charge the Lord. Let me show you a verse, Luke chapter 12. This sermon had a very long introduction and just some simple truths here as we finish up. We've got to understand that Satan uses deprivation as a spiritual warfare tactic. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Luke chapter 12. Look look at verse 12, uh, 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he'd divide the inheritance with me. So a man comes to Jesus. Now understand, Jesus is healing people, blind or seeing, deaf or hearing, mute or talking, dead people are being raised. And this guy comes to Jesus and said, Lord, my brother's not sharing the inheritance. And so we go from the heights of miracles to make my brother give me the stuff I'm owed. And look at the Lord's response, verse 15. And he said unto him, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Son, you think I'm just here to make sure you get your stuff? 
And look what the truth Jesus told him. Verse 15. And he said unto them. So Jesus used this public question as a way to teach all that were listening. And he said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. What's Jesus saying? Your life's more than possessions. Your life's more than your bank balance. Your life's more than what car you drive, what house you live in, what stuff you have. What we see in America especially is a lot of people determine the success or failure of their life based on their stuff, their possessions. And Jesus said, I'm not here to make sure you get your earthly stuff. And by the way, don't get caught up in covetousness. It'll ruin you. And don't judge your life based on the stuff you have. I know rich people that would give anything if their kids would just love them. I know people that live in multi-million dollar houses that they just wish their spouse would come back. I know people that would give everything they own for some of the things that you and I take for granted every day. But we've got to be wise. If, if we think our life is just possessions, then when, our, when Satan takes our stuff or we don't get what we think we're owed, man, we're, we'll turn around and curse God for it. Look at Luke chapter 7. There's a beautiful, sad yet beautiful story about John the Baptist and Jesus in Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist, of course, six months older than the Lord Jesus, his earthly cousin. John the Baptist was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was so famous, at one point people thought he might be the Christ, but no, you remember the story. He baptized Christ. He pointed people to Jesus. John the Baptist was the first believer in Jesus Christ. Think about that. The first one to point people to Jesus Christ and say, there he is. Fast forward some years. John's sitting in prison. Knows he's probably going to be killed at some point. Herod was a maniacal man, unstable. John the Baptist had done the great sin of telling Herod, that he shouldn't have his brother's wife, which was kind of common sense in the Jewish world. So here he is sitting in prison. Look at Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. And the disciples of John showed him all of these things. So John's in prison, his, but he still had some disciples. And so they came and told him about Jesus. Man, these things are happening. These things are happening. Jesus is doing this, and Jesus is doing this. Look at verse 19. And John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? I want you to stop and think for a minute. John the Baptist was the first believer in Christ as the Messiah. He was the first one to say, there he is. But now he's questioning 
is this really the guy? Why is that? I believe it's because things didn't work out like John the Baptist thought they would. And sometimes we can be, we can have convictions and be so strong when everything's working out like we feel like it should. But when everything falls apart and we feel like, whoa, things aren't going the way I had envisioned, now we begin to doubt. But thankfully, John the Baptist was wise enough to go ask Jesus the question. He didn't just muddle this around in his own mind. But think about the power of that. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Verse 20, when the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Now, pause for a moment. How would those words have hit the Lord Jesus Christ? This is his cousin. This is the first one to believe in him, the first one to point him out, baptize him. If anybody knew he was the Christ, it was John the Baptist. Christ had compassion on him because he knew men. Look what he did, his response. Verse 21, he just put the guys over to the side, said, I'll get with you in a minute. Verse 21, and in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Well, after he does a lot of miracles, many miracles, he calls these guys back over, verse 22. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel of preach. Now if you know the scriptures, those were all signs of the Messiah. Look at verse 23. And he wanted them to give John a message. Verse 23, and blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What does that mean? How could you be offended in Christ? Go tell John not to lose faith because I'm not doing it the way he thought I would. And if we're honest with ourselves, we too can admit that we get frustrated with God when he's not doing it the way that we would have done it or when he lets something happen that we wouldn't have let happen and blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me he is the Lord I can't get offended when he makes a decision above my pay grade I'm going to still trust him I'm going to still love him I'm going to still believe in him because blessed is he who's not offended in him. And again, Satan uses this idea of deprivation. I'm going to take what's yours. I'm going to take what's rightfully yours, or I'm going to take what you think you should have, or I'm going to hurt you in some way. This is a way of satanic warfare, and we must decide that when, when life hurts, we will still trust God. Let me show you what Job did right, and we'll be done. Turn back to Job chapter 13. Job chapter 13. 
love this verse. Look at verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And make no mistake, Job felt like he was dying. But he said, I'm going to die in my integrity. I'm going to die trusting God. And if God chooses to end my life tonight in a colossal mess of pain and suffering and loss, I will die trusting Him. When Satan comes along and tries this tactic of deprivation on us, we must say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Let me show you a final verse, Job chapter 19. We must follow Job's example. We use deprivation as a motivation to confess our faith in God and trust him even as we are dying. Job chapter 19, and look at verse For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now notice he didn't say, I know God lives. He said, my Redeemer. He's talking about his salvation. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. So Job knew a lot about theology. He knew one day that the Christ would come. He knew one day that Christ would rule and reign on the earth. A man of faith, a man of knowledge and theology. Job chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand, upon, stand at the latter day upon the earth. Verse 26. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Isn't that beautiful? You see this statement of faith? He's confused. He's upset, he's angry, he's frustrated, but he said, if God kills me, I'm going to trust him. And then in another expression of his faith, he says, I know my Redeemer's alive, I know he's going to stand on this earth and rule and reign, and I know one of these days this old body might die and worms are going to eat this body, but I know I'm going to see God. See the faith? Folks, whenever we are suffering, when we are hurting, when we've been deprived and beaten and afflicted, we still have to have the faith to say, I know that God's God. I know that the Bible's right. I know that God's still in control. I know that one of these days he's going to come back and set this world right. And I know that one of these days I will see God. God honored that. And our confidence in these truths can strengthen us during any trial. Let me finish by saying this. Take God off trial. Stop judging whether God is good based on how your life is going today. 
Some Christians, it's like they've always got God on the, the prosecutor's bench. And God's always having to defend himself. Well, God, why'd you do this? And God, why'd you let that happen? And God, why'd you do this? And, and they're like, Christ is at the defendant's bench as they're the prosecutor trying to make God explain. Answer the question, Lord. Why this? Why that? How could you do this? And every Christian needs to take God off trial. God is good. He's good when my life stinks. He's good when I'm on the mountaintop. He's good when I'm in the valley. And he'll be good when I'm six feet under. He's good when everybody loves us. He's good when everybody hates us. He's good when we've got more than enough. And he's good when we're broke. And when you can get to the place where every day of your life, you just take God off trial and God is good. This tool, satanic tool of deprivation, loses its power. Because we might lose everything, but we'll be like Job. We might rent our mantle. We might shave our heads. We might fall on our face, but what's going to come out of our words is, God, you're so good. You're so good, God. I don't deserve anything. You're so good. Take God off trial. God's gracious and merciful. Never let Satan use a weapon of deprivation to weaken our faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. (coughs) Pray that you'd help us this evening as we meditate on this truth boy satan's got a bag full of tricks and he's very good at using them and this one's powerful and it's been used so effectively over the years (coughs) but i pray that you'd help us to take you off trial naked we came into this world we're going to leave the same way Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Lord, we don't want to suffer. We can pray for hedges of protection like you had put around Job. And I do pray you'd protect our church, protect my family, protect every family.